Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 8. We continue this morning in our series called The Upper Room, The Upper Room, and we're looking at primarily at the discourse, the discourses of the Lord Jesus Christ with his men in Jerusalem. And we'll be reading verses 8 to verses 17, or to verse 17. The rustling of the pages. It's a beautiful sound from the pulpit. Really, it is. Well, with our word, with the word of God open, let us hear God's word. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it, sees, it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, teach us. Rebuke us, correct us, and train us up in righteousness so that we would be fully equipped for every good work as we follow Jesus. Amen. Philip, why the question? Is Philip wanting to know God on his own terms? Is the ordinary means of grace not enough? What Jesus has already shown him, it appears it seems to be not enough. He says, show me the Father. In fact, there are many people that hunger and desire for a greater revelation of God and that the ordinary means, the Word of God, prayer, corporate worship, the sacraments, are not enough. They want an experience a certain euphoric experience, and this has always been. This has always been throughout the history of the church. If you look through every single century, we're always like Philip saying, show me the Father. Show me something I haven't seen. I want to experience him in a, in a greater and fuller way. 
I want a greater and grander experience of the power and presence of God. And the thing is, about Philip, hadn't he seen the greatness and the grandeur of God in Jesus Christ? Was he not there at the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000? Was he not there at the many other miracles, even raising the dead like Lazarus? Or that son from Nain? He had been there, hadn't he? And yet, he had not discerned their meaning, had he? It appears that somehow he had not discerned the meaning of Jesus' person, Jesus' power, and Jesus' teaching. It it almost seems that Jesus' work, his extraordinary work, his extraordinary teaching had become, well, it seems ordinary, expected. Give us more. Show us the Father like Moses on the mountain. Oh, yes, like Moses on Mount Sinai. Did not Moses want to see the very presence of God? Maybe that's what Philip is wanting. A glimpse of God like Moses on the mountain. He's seen many things, hasn't he? He's wanting more. And it's Jesus' work that he talks about. Jesus responds to him with a question. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Don't you know me, brother? We've spent some three and a half years together. Don't you know me? Now, Philip is an interesting figure. I I do think Philip in the story is sort of like you and I in this story. John puts him there on purpose, along with many other individuals. And Philip was a kind of guy that said, come and see. When he first believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the one that Moses had written about in the, in the Torah, he, he went to Nathaniel, did he not? And he said, I, I found the one that Moses spoke about in the law. And the prophet spoke about as well, the prophet Isaiah. And he said, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Of course, that's what everybody thought back then, that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And I do love what Philip said, come and see. Come and see. He's a kind of come and see kind of man. Just come and see. Uh, So I want to fill out this person called Philip. Yes, we see him maybe in a negative light, but in another light, he's the kind of guy that brings people to Jesus. He's that kind of guy. In fact, his name is Philip, which means fond of horses. I have no idea if his family raised horses or if he rode horses. It simply means fond of horses, and it is a Greek name. And what is interesting is that in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 12, the Greeks came to Philip. Because they too wanted to see Jesus. They too wanted to get near Jesus. And what did Philip do again? Oh, he brought them to Jesus. Again, he's that come and see kind 
of God. Actually, the more I read about Philip, the more I like him. Because he's introducing people to Jesus. Is that you? Are you a come and see kind of gal? Are you a come and see kind of guy? Are you directing people? Oh, let me, let me introduce you to Jesus. That's the kind of man we see here, but like us, he is also, well, he's a matter-of-fact kind of man. There's a moment before the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 where Jesus asked him this question, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And Jesus asked this question only to test him. He's testing Philip. He's a come and see kind of guy. He's a guy that wants to introduce everybody to Jesus because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus was testing him because there were some 5,000 men in this crowd along with their children and wives, a number up to 20,000, maybe beyond. And this is what Philip said. Again, he's a matter-of-fact kind of guy. He's doing the math. We got a big crowd, Jesus. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I don't have 200 denarii. Where are we going to get 200 denarii to feed so many people? And even then, they would only have one single bite. But what was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing to this matter-of-fact kind of guy? He, he wanted them to look beyond, didn't he? Because he had already seen the greatness of Jesus' ministry, not, in his, not only in his proclamation, but in his miraculous power to heal the blind and the lame and to raise the dead. And at this wondrous moment with this 20,000 people before him, he wants Philip to see beyond the plain right here, but to look to him, to trust him. And he doesn't see it. He doesn't see Jesus who he is, what he's come to do. But Jesus is always patient with his failing friends, sort of like you and me, always patient. And even despite the faith of Philip, who just completely missed it, Jesus gets up there with the five loaves, those five barley loaves and those two fish, and he feeds 5,000 men, plus their wives and children, and they all had as much as they wanted. You, you would think that the scales would have fallen off at that moment, right? Philip's going, boy, I got that one wrong. I completely missed it. We didn't need cash. We needed Jesus. He had missed it. And here at this central hour in the upper room after Jesus had washed their feet and had instituted the Lord's Supper, the new covenant in his blood. And this is the very hour. The hour has come for Jesus' death. And Peter and Philip still doesn't get it. And neither did Peter and neither did John or neither did any of the other disciples. 
And Jesus' answer, of course, is, I believe one of pain. Don't you know me? Remember, Jesus was fully God and fully human. Don't you know me, Philip? Haven't we broken bread together? Haven't we, haven't we laughed together? Haven't we labored together all these years? Haven't you, with me, experienced persecution from the Jews? Haven't you experienced all these things? And Jesus said simply, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to see the Father? Do you want to see the Father, Philip? You've seen him. Because what we learn in the context is I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need a special revelation. If you've come to Jesus, you have met God himself by faith. But do you believe on the Lord Jesus? I mean, Jesus is saying, you have seen the Father in my person, in my miracles, in my teaching. You have seen the Father, and what I want from you. If you notice in the text in verse 10 and verse 11, he mentions believe, believe, believe. And he's already said this multiple times before. Trust me, believe on me, again and again and again and again. Christ calls for his disciples to trust him, to believe in him, to believe in his word. And yet at this moment, they're missing it. It's good for us to see the frailty of these men. It's therefore our instruction, isn't it? Because yes, we believe, but how well do you believe? Remember the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief? I think that's most of you. In fact, I, bet, I think it's all of you. I believe, but do I always trust him? I think I'm a lot like Philip, or Thomas, or Peter, and so are you. And isn't it interesting how Jesus keeps saying, believe, 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 not just here in this context, but throughout the entire Gospel of John. It seems that we're a little bit hard-headed, or like the Jewish people in the wilderness wandering, a bit stiff-necked. It takes a while for us to get it. And God, in his patience, keeps saying, believe, believe, believe. Isn't that wondrous? See, we have a God that truly loves us, because even when we don't get it, even when we believe but help my unbelief, he's still there, he's still caring, he's still shepherding, he's still speaking, he's still encouraging, because he loves us. And he loves Philip. He really is so gentle with Philip. And he says something so encouraging, although his men are completely, utterly missing the moment and missing the point, he talks about the greater work. Verse 12, I tell you the truth. This is after they hadn't gotten it, after they missed it, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have do been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. He is speaking of his death, resurrection, and ascension. 
in which he will then intercede for the church. And we'll talk about that later in this series. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's, that's encouraging, isn't it? Ask for anything in my name and I will do it. This weak band of brothers is being encouraged, but what is the greater work? How can Jesus say to the disciples, to the apostles, that they will do greater work than his or greater things? How can they do a greater work than the incarnation? How can they do a greater work than Jesus' miracles of even raising the dead? How can they do a greater work than his, all of his wondrous teachings? And how can they do a greater work than his death and resurrection and ascension? How can the church, because I don't believe he's speaking merely to the apostles, but he's also speaking to the wider church. How can we do greater things than Christ? Now, obviously, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his resurrection and ascension are a unique to Jesus' person and him alone. But the question is, how can we do greater work? than Jesus. Well, what's fundamentally the work? Was Jesus' fundamental work to do miracles? Was that the fundamental work of his coming? No, Jesus' focus was on the cross in, in all the Gospels. Go to the synoptics, go to John. The majority of the time, Jesus is facing the cross. The, the glorious great work that Jesus was sent for was to give his life as atoning sacrifice for sin as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it's that message that the apostles are being given. It's that glorious message that brings recreation from a dead heart and makes him or her alive through the preaching of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And we know that Jesus had very few disciples, in fact, at the end of his life and even after his resurrection. But what happened on Pentecost? Well, the Spirit of God came upon them. And we see that here. He, will be, he is with you right now. The Holy Spirit is with you. But he will be in you. He's speaking to Pentecost. He's speaking to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of a day in which 3,000 men and women would come to faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized. And then a little while longer, there was 5,000 who had come to faith. And every day, people were being added to their number. And in fact, they would take that glorious message from where? From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Yeah, even Samaria, those people that could not stand and they hated. Yes, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And when you get to the, book of, the end of the book of Acts, you're in the greatest city on the planet, Rome. And the gospel is spreading throughout all that. That's what Jesus is meaning. You will do greater work because the spirit of Christ will be in you. And you'll go forth in the power of the Spirit and proclaim the kingdom. And I'll intercede over you, over you as you labor in the far-flung fields of the world. Greater works. That's what he's speaking of. Of course, when you have 5,000, you can do a lot more preaching. You can do a lot more ministry. If you have a 
10 million. You can do even more. And today in the globe, there are well over a billion brothers and sisters in Christ in the world doing that greater work which Jesus prophesied here in the upper room with his friends, with his dear friends. And Jesus gives something so central to the work. What's central to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's central to every word ministry in this church? In fact, every word and mercy ministry in this church that is often, well, so lacking. It's prayer, isn't it? It's very clear that Jesus instructs his men, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. If the great work of the gospel is going to go forth, that very message which Jesus lived and we are to proclaim, it is a work that must be bathed in prayer. It must be bathed in prayer, believing what God has already said. Because if I do not believe in the gospel, how can I share the gospel? How can I bring the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations? So we pray in faith. We pray in the name of Jesus. And this is, I think, important for us to understand a bit of the moment that Jesus instructs his men. In the ancient world, someone's name communicated who they were. Someone's name communicated who they were. It represented the person. So praying in Jesus' name means praying in a way consistent with his character and his will. I think that's important. Praying in Jesus' name means praying in a way consistent of his character and his will. So when Jesus says, pray for anything in my name, he doesn't mean anything. It's in accordance with his will. So if I'm praying for something in order that I might be richly blessed and no one else, we can make sure that that's not God's will. You're praying your own will. Well, you need to be praying already in conformity to God's will because Jesus has already instructed us on prayer. How does our prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. So it's about Jesus' kingdom and thy will be done. So it's essential that as we pray in Jesus' name, we pray in accordance with his will that is revealed in his word. That's what Jesus is meaning here by praying in his name. And how wondrous that is if we love Jesus to pray according to his will. Because if we love him, we want to do his will. Don't you? If we love him, we want to pray in accordance with his will. That's what he wants for his men as they go out. And they pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they would pray in conformity to his character and will to the praise of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in which all of us are baptized into. 
Then, of course, there's the work of love. And cadets, you probably noticed the verse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You remember saying that? I remember saying that all the time. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. As I said previous, why do we obey? Because we love him. And as John says in, in his letter, because he first loved us. It's an outworking of a heart made new. He's wanting Philip and Peter and Nathaniel and Thomas to love him and love him through obedience, not under compulsion, but because you love me. And that's the real question. We know that Jesus loves us, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but do we love him? Do I love him? Is it evident in my life? Because it appears that loving him is not merely a subjective reality, it is an objective reality, and that it is seen in one's obedience to God's word, to God's will. And I think that's very helpful in our generation of this, people giving the heart, and they don't mean it at all. Love, we know in Scripture, is not just only a subjective reality. It is actually an objective one. And, of course, he had really shown this again in his service to his men. He had shown it over and over and over again to them. But, of course, as we listened to that command, as, as I went back thinking about my cadet years and how naughty I was, even though we said this verse all the time. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I kept asking myself going back, but do I? Do I keep his commandments because I love him? Do I keep failing to keep his promises? Do you? That, that was the question for myself. Because when I hear Christ's command, I sense and I experience my smallness, my failings, my sin. And that's when Jesus says in verse 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. At that moment, your heart should ignite with delight. Because God is sending his comforter. He is sending his Holy Spirit to his men. But what does that mean? Why, why would I be comforted that the Holy Spirit is coming to you? Because doesn't the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin? What do we know by this word comfort? It's called paraclete or parakletos. It, it literally means uh, one called alongside to help. And there's a few contexts to this word, parakletos, or counselor, or helper, or advocate. You've seen all these different ways to translate this word in the Bible. It, in one sense, means a legal technical term as one who appears in behalf of another's behalf to advocate or to be defender or intercessor. So it's a legal term. And if you go to 1 John, 
chapter 2, verse 1, John writes in this legal way, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. That word's the same word, parakletos, in our legal defense, because he says, I died for him or her. He makes our defense in heaven. But in this context, the meaning is a bit different. The meaning is, is again, one who is called to strengthen or help. And I thought the best one is strength. What did we learn about every single disciple in the gospel? And so far, even in our series, weakness, weakness, weakness. What do you learn about yourself as you run the race long term? Well, I'll just say myself, weakness, weakness, weakness. But what we learn about the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he is there to strengthen, to actually stand alongside of you and help hold you up a bit, to lean into you to give you stability as you walk the treacherous road of obedience following Jesus. And that's why the Holy Spirit's coming is so important for us to see here as the reader. Because not only is he our strength in times of trouble, in fact, these men would experience all kinds of trouble, and so will you and I, but also this same counselor or paraclete is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth, as you see in verse 17, the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he lives with you and will be with you. He'll be in you. And in fact, Jesus, in the same upper room discourse, in John chapter 16, 13, says this, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus is saying, at this moment, you're not going to be able to take it in. It's like drinking from a fire hydrant. In many ways, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Too much to take in in the moment. And in fact, we know that they're already missing the point, aren't they? And here Jesus says to these men in the upper room, oh, by the way, the spirit of truth will come and he'll remind you of all this because right now, you ain't getting it. Right now, you don't understand. But he will come and to help you discern the word made flesh and dwell, dwelling among us. And that same spirit of truth that is promised to the apostles, is promised to every single man or woman who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is born again, the spirit of truth that leads us into all truth. In fact, within our understanding of the Holy Spirit is that I cannot rightly read for spiritual edification, for salvation, the word of God without the spirit. I need the Spirit to strengthen my weak faculties and to speak that truth to me. Yeah, this is a theological point, but the practical reality is this. When you come to the Word of God, you come to a supernatural book that is supernaturally discerned. Yes, you can exegete it. You can do all the linguistic details of the study according to the grammatical historical approach. 
but it doesn't mean you've ascertained what it says because to know the word is to live the word. They're never separate. They're not separate. It's meant for our education. So when we come to the word of God, how ought we to come? Well, know that you're weak. Like me, a bit pathetic, weak to understand everything God has to say to me, but knowing this, that the, there's a spirit inside me, the Holy Spirit who indwells me. And I pray to, I pray, Holy Spirit, help me, because I'm a little bit of a stiff-necked man. I'm a little dull. I'm a little inattentive. I'm highly distracted. But help me to focus and concentrate on your word, and so speak to your word to me. It's a practical prayer. It's a humbling prayer too. And it puts your mind instantaneously in the, instantaneously in the right framework so that you might know who? That you might do, know Jesus. And the disciples, did they know everything about Jesus or really who he was? No. But they learned. The Holy Spirit of truth revealed it to, him, to them in an age of lies and in their own ignorance. The Spirit spoke. And I am so encouraged of Jesus' words here to myself, realizing that all the seminary education and all the reading does not make one wise unto salvation. All the church attendance does not make one wise to salvation. Only when the Spirit of truth breaks into the heart and reveals Christ to you can you really understand and live for him. Because the context here, here is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me in this age of lies to know the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would encourage us by your Spirit to come to your word humbly, in weakness, but expectation to know the truth and to live it and help us, O Holy Spirit, to live your word. Give us that help from on high so that we might love you more. And and in, in loving you, we understand your love even more fully. And the glorious love that is in Christ Jesus would be only more beautiful, more wondrous, more powerful in shaping our thinking, our affections, our emotions, and our living for the glory of God. Amen.